Hello everyone and welcome to Final Show. I'm John, the executive producer here, and I've just got a few pre-show notes for you. First of all, I want to let everybody know that our addresses have changed. Uh, our Twitch channel has changed from Sinstaku to twitch.tv slash finalshowfilms, and our YouTube channel has also changed to youtube.com slash finalshowfilms. Next, we want to thank our $20 tier supporters on Patreon, which is patreon.com slash films, by the way, if you want to go throw a couple bucks our way. That's going to be Cat Waterflame, Antitonic, Samantha Bates, and Maureen Monty. Thank you guys for that. Also, our website is in the process of getting updated. So go take a look at finalshowfilms.com. We've got Mara and Jeremy are working on updating all of our stuff there, making it look nice and like a modern website, and frankly, they know what they're doing far better than I or Austin ever did, so if you want to check out the things that are changing over there, you go do that. Follow us on Twitter, at Final Show Films, for updates uh, for all future things, including things that are going on with our website, and going on with the Patreon page, and things that are going on live as we stream them, uh, as well as our podcasts and everything else, so thank you very much for watching, you all have a good day. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Critical Thinking, episode 45, The Sunken Tomb. I'm John, at John A. Bates on Twitter, and with me today is Jack. Hey, everybody, I'm Jack, at Alt-F4Gamers on Twitter. And Jeremy. Hello, my name is Jeremy. I am at jthomas411mania with her. And this week we're talking about Critical Role, episode 44, The Sunken Tomb, starring Laura Bailey as Vexalia, Talison Jaffe as Percy, Liam O'Brien as Vaxeldon, Marisha Ray as Keelan, Sam Reel as Scanlan, Travis Willingham as Grog, and Matthew Mercer as the Dungeon Master, and special guests Will Friedel as Kashal Vesh, and Mary Elizabeth McGlynn as Zara Hydras. Last time on Critical Role, Grog got the shit kicked out of him. Sometimes monks surprise you. Some... <laughs> Surprise is one word. I don't think it applies, but certainly. Sometimes monks surprise you, and perhaps they shouldn't. <laughs> like, it really shouldn't have been that surprising. <laughs> There's the trope of never get into a fight but with an old ma Asian man w holding only a broom, you know? This wasn't quite that, but it was pretty damn close. This was an old Asian... This was an old man built like a brick shit house, Very clearly <laughs> holding fists. Yep. <laughs> anyway. Grog got the shit kicked out of him. And then they went off to talk to a Sphinx. Um, or did they talk to the Sphinx first? They, no, they, talk to the Sphinx they first. They talked to the Sphinx first. Then Grog got the shit out of him. Then, yeah, so they, they've... They, then they went to get Kima. That was it. Um, so anyways, we pick up with the group of adventurers attempting to figure out what the fuck they're doing, uh, as they have Kima with them, as well as Kashaw and Zara. And I have ADHD, but even I can keep track of things better than this group can, as they spend 20 minutes trying to figure out what they're doing, confusing both themselves and the NPCs and the Dungeon Master, all in the same breath. Uh, eventually figuring out that they are going to go to this, uh, what's it called? The, the Marrow Glade Lock in order to look for a vestige of divergence, uh, and then go see the Fire Ashari, who are beyond the, the lock, 
and see what happened there. And then they will use uh, transport via plants to head back to Taldore, uh, back to Iman, or not Iman, but Taldore, uh, in order to see what's going on there and, and do, set about hunting some dragons. Uh, but first, before they leave, they come up with the brilliant idea of doing research uh, by looking by uh, after after having this intense you know back and forth with uh, with themselves trying to determine what they're doing and then eventually about halfway through it introducing uh, Kasha and uh, Kasha and Zara to to Kima uh, who had been standing there basically trying to act, trying to make them make a decision. As Kima is wont to do, uh, they went. Oh, yeah. I should uh, I should mention because this may be something that we want to touch on later once yeah. we get to bigger events. But this is an anniversary episode. Is it? Yes. Yeah. I skipped the I skipped the the beginning in, uh, announcements, so I missed that. Yes, this was the. I don't remember what anniversary it was. One year anniversary. Hmm? Was it the one year? Yeah, this is the one year anniversary. Yeah. yeah. There's a there. I remember it vividly because there is a very specific reference to uh, 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 to it out of character at one point um, in a discussion over names. I will. We'll get there. I will take your word for that. Um. Anyways, so they go. They they decide to go look up some information and see if they can't find out what's going on with this lock and with the Deathwalker's ward, which uh, is the the two items, uh, the two items that they that they had lo- that they knew of were the Titanstone knuckles, which Grog said belonged to his uh, belonged to his uncle Kevdak, who they did not part on terms good terms with. Um, and the Deathwalker's Award, which belonged to a champion of the Raven Queen, and the tomb apparently exists uh, to the west of Vasselheim, underneath the lock, supposedly. Um, so they go to they go to look up some information about the the Deathwalker's Ward and maybe about the Marigreed Lock, just to sort of see what they're looking for. <clears throat> uh, Vex finds a bookseller, a book collector shop in Vasselheim. She goes in and looks for a book, finds a book that has some information, and proceeds to sit down in the middle of this bookseller and read the book that that they that that she found. As anybody who's ever spent some time in a Barnes and Noble knows, is a very normal thing to do. Yes, in a Barnes and Noble. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> in the mom and pa shop, uh, bookshop. That uh, around the corner from from the Barnes and Noble that is barely getting by, less so. Before yeah. the printing press has been invented, yes. Yeah, uh, the shop owner politely, air quotes, asks Vex to if she would like to read the book, buy the book, um, which Vex seems unwilling to do. Uh, Vex tries to glean as much information out of the book as she can without buying it. The shop owner refuses adamantly to let her read the book in its entirety without buying it. Uh, She attempts to bargain by saying it's a nice book, but not as nice as other books. And that the book collectors that she knows 
like books that are in mint condition, fails to bargain, and ends up paying 30 gold for the book, which was the asking price. Which is the first time in this campaign that Vex has ever had to pay full price for anything. I just always love it when Vex gets finds her arch enemies are are are, are typically not like overarching villains or anything like that. It's merchants who dem- who expect to be paid fair wages for their for their goods. Yeah, that- and it always amuses me. Vex's great battles are always with merchants. Last week, she almost killed one. <laughs> this week, but for but for me, it brings up an interesting topic of anachronistic behavior, which is something that. In circumstances like this, both with performers and with audience are sometimes a thing that needs to be addressed because most people in the modern day would think nothing of walking in more or less any type of bookshop and just sitting down and reading the book to see if they want to buy it and then even finishing the book and deciding not. Nah. You know, yeah, some people are not not good. Uh, uh, not good uh, uh, members of a capitalistic society. Right, right. But <laughs> but the and and the idea because at this general sort of pre-industrial pre-printing press sort of time, and granted, there's magic and stuff that probably fusses with you know what you would consider normal real life historical history of literary objects right but at this general area era of 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 history and development books are rare they are a luxury they are always the product of hundreds of hours of painstaking hand work you know and they're not something that's mass produced and so the idea of someone outside of a highly specific demographic, you're talking scholars, members of the legal community, you know, stuff like that. Hardly anybody is going to own a book and it's going to be ridiculously expensive and honestly not that useful to most people. Because when you don't have a lot of books, you know, your your general tendency of, of people being literate is also significantly reduced. So this is this is basically kind of the equivalent of somebody walking into an art gallery and saying, I, I see the, the Rembrandt you have here, but I want to make sure and rub my hands all over first before I decide whether or not I want to buy it. Yeah, though, I will take though, I will note that I don't know that. For for purposes of discussing, you know, mo- uh, modern date behaviors uh, when put in a setting that's clearly not our modern day, it works. But anachronistic, be- anachronistic as a term, as a descriptor for behaviors, only really applies if it is anachronistic in the world that you're talking about. Because it very may true. very well be that in most places in Taldore, that is a common practice and not actually what you would refer to as an anachronistic one. It may right. just be that Vex thought this was a different this this Vex is used to going into libraries and not booksellers. Mm-hmm. And so it's a it's a behavior that is more common with a library than with a bookseller. Um I right. mean it, 
but it's the sort of thing that you would need to have a discussion about because yeah. most players or most performers are going to come to a, a situation like this and assume that their current body of knowledge on what they feel is most socially appropriate is fairly, at least fairly accurate. Yeah. And I, I want to, I want to, and I, I wanted to point this out, not, not specifically to correct anything that you're saying, but for people that are mm-hmm. doing literary analysis, um, oftentimes there will be a tendency to see things as being out of place when maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Um, and terms like anachronis- like anachronisms, uh, are insular meaning in that they on- they apply to the world that you're looking at. They don't apply extra right. extra worldly. Like yeah, what is an what is an anachronism? No universal. Yeah, what is an anachronism in our world is not necessarily an anachronism in another world. Um, that said, in in this case, I well in those situations in general. Your easiest way to tell because a lot of time, a lot of times when you're reading a book that is not set in the modern day, it doesn't start with a 700 page list of, of what the social norms are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it is context clues. Yes. Right. And that's what you have to look at. In this case, I think knowing what we know about Vex as a character, knowing that she comes from. A a or she, not she comes from, but she spent many uh some of her formative years in a society that very much values knowledge and values the 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 sacredness of of texts and things like that in terms of of the elven society and the fact that she a lot of what she does is informed by the fact that. She feels the need to sort of rebel against that. And being as stingy as she is, I think she knew damn well what she was doing was wrong oh, yeah. and oh. was trying to get away with it. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I think I think in this in this yeah, case, no. I think it was a, I'm just going to read this and see if I can get away with it. <laughs> yep. Um, but yeah, no, no, that is a, that is a point because you do have to win, win, win writing playing in a system or whatever you do have to make sure that whatever your characters are doing is justified in the setting that they're in if you want it to make sense if you want it to not kick you out of the story so like if like yeah if you're writing a if you're writing a a book that is in a sci-fi setting and you have a character spout out techno babble that fits if you have a character in a fantasy setting and they start spouting out techno babble, you better have a reason either before or coming very quickly after for them to have started spouting out techno babble, or it will feel out of place for viewers or readers. And if you're looking for a game and setting where the non sequitur is does not require any explanation, go play Paranoia. <laughs> yep. Um, and if you do have that fantasy character start spouting out uh, a, a techno babble, and, and and you do have an explanation coming, just make sure it's not one as fucking terrible as the Dark Sword trilogy by Margaret Wrightson. Well, it, it <laughs> sorry, actually, I have to shit all over that fantasy series whenever I think of it. Well, and actually, it makes me think <laughs> of there's a video game series, a, a Japanese role playing game series called Star Ocean. 
which which, uh-huh. which which this actually made me think of uh which is it's basic and the basic premise is not all worlds in the gal not all planets in the galaxy are created equal or at the same time mm-hmm. uh and so where one planet may have achieved vast hyper technology space flight and uh faster than light travel another planet might still be in the dark ages and so this collective this collective of uh, highly advanced civilizations have a series of pacts in place to prevent uh, uh, modern uh, modern uh, civilizations from modernizing these planets that they might find that are still stuck in dark ages. Um, and that becomes the crux of several military conflicts uh, that go out throughout the story about you know, people going down to a medieval fantasy setting, finding the Nazi Germany equivalent and giving them high-powered rifles uh, as a means of subjugating planets. And that sort of... The way they the way they sort of build to those reveals in that in those stories are by having things that you the reader or you the viewer would recognize as advanced technology, but that the the characters in the setting simply wouldn't see or recognize. Things like a ship crashing and then activating an emergency cloak, so that by the time the players get there, they don't the characters get there, they don't see anything, but you the the viewer, the outside viewer, can see the telltale signs of something is here but invisible. Mm-hmm. And so that that is a way to set up that there are some things that might be referenced later on that will seem out of place for this fantasy setting, but you, the viewer, now know this isn't your typical fantasy setting. Um, things like that, when you're writing or when you're, when you're telling these sorts of stories, are ways to establish that there might be some seemingly anachronistic but not actually things. Right. That was a tangent. <laughs> it's all good. Anyways... Vex buys a book for thirty gold. Yes. It's the first time she's at in, in the entire campaign that she's bought something at market price. Um, which the the, the other players comment on in astonishment. Uh, Vex asks the name of this individual. Uh, Benjamin Cole is responded as the 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 book collector who then wishes her a good day, and she leaves. Reading in the book. Uh, they discover that uh, there was uh, in ancient times there were many uh, there were many individuals who uh, gave themselves to the Raven Queen to be her champion and would remove their name basically they would they would give up their name and just be, be known as the champion of the Raven Queen and the most recent the most recent uh, uh, holder of this title uh, who was indeed buried somewhere to the west of the city which would make sense with the information they had previously. Uh, been given was named Pervon Sewell. Yep, that just happened. And, and the crew has a field day, shall we say, with a character named Pervon. P U R V A N. Or as or as Liam O'Brien said, get your Pervon. <laughs> When, when you're yep. naming when you're naming characters as a GM, understand the the mentality of your players. <laughs> For instance, 
I know that all of my players are children, so I make sure never to give them a name like that unless I intend for it. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it's unavoidable. Like, uh, I, I've told this story to, to Final Show Films crew many a time. <laughs> but uh, my, 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 my home tabletop group is infamous for this kind of thing. I cannot... I got to the point where I would start reciting the names to like out loud to myself several different times to try and make sure that I was not... Because if I mispronounced a name wrong the first time, they were stuck with that name. So there is a... There is a... There is a villain in the Forgotten Realm. Um, he is... Uh, he, he's significant within the Genterum. Um... To this day, I still don't know how to pronounce his name correctly because it got so fucked by my by, by my players. I'm not capable. But it is S E M, M E M M O N. And the first time I ca- uh, I, uh, I said it, it came out Sememen. Or that was what I was trying to say, and it came out somewhat different. From that point forward, one of the prominent na- members of one of the greatest evil organizations in Faerun <laughs> was treated by my players as if he had a stripper name <laughs> and was Cinnamon. Cinnamon is his name, for those curious. And I will give you a little bit of leeway with the Zentarum because all three of their inner circle individuals are stupidly named. Yes, yes. Because there's Sememon, then there's Manshun, as in Manshun. Which sounds like a lot. Well, Manshun just sounds to me like it has a lot of really unfortunate racial connotations. That too. And then there's Falkembril. It, there's a Z in foul, but it's silent. Yes, it is. <laughs> I have never made it silent because I didn't want that to be the joke. Yeah, uh, I think it's actually supposed but to be like, Fizul, but it's 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 foul with a Z in it. Yeah, <laughs> it's Fizul Kimbrel, but it's spelled foul with a Z in it. But like that, and that's the kind of thing like. I rely a lot. I, I don't... It's been a long time since I've done a homebrew. I rely a lot on established settings when I'm running games. So I do a lot of Faerun stuff. I do a lot of World of Darkness stuff. I do a lot of uh, uh, Eberron stuff. And so a lot of names I don't get the blame for. I get the blame because I said it wrong. Um, But I didn't create these names. Uh, which is actually also part of the problem because if I didn't create the names, I don't know how to say the names unless I, I, I practice it to myself. And sometimes I try to practice it in my head and once it comes out of my mouth, it sounds different. But still, yes, even even if you're using, whether you're using established settings or not, you do kind of have to be careful because I also have foibles as far as my character names go. Um the the uh, I tend to rely on like a lot of a and vowel style names for 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 the women NPCs in my game. 
And I, there are certain letters that I think every everybody who runs stuff or everybody who plays, everybody who has anything to do with create creative, you know, narrative creation, tend to fall back on as a. And it's just always important to sort of keep that in mind and 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 realize if you're if you're doing your seventh character with a J name. That could be hard for your readers or your players or your DM or whatever it is to follow and keep track differently. And if they confuse <clears throat> one for the other, it might be your fault. Uh, if it makes you feel any better, by the way, Jeremy, uh, Sememon's name, actual name, his, his birth name is Malathar Wingstarl. That's much worse. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ, Greenwood. Sememon, like born Malathar Wingstarl, was a was a Condathan human of the Wingstarl family. <laughs> that is a Marvel Comics level of bad uh, 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 of blatant foreshadowing of name. <laughs> Ah, do you have anything to add, Jack? Just that your players will never take the game as seriously as you will, no matter how much you might want them to. I wouldn't say so that. So when they see an opposite, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Well, and I'm also, I think there, I think there are but also definitely you... points where this, the players might be wanting to take it even more seriously than you are. Well, Once yeah. I mean, I don't know why you guys don't want a pet oozling, but, you know, that's your problem. Um, but in most experiences that I've had, whoever is running the game, writing the piece, that sort of thing, unless it's specifically a comedic work, they're going to try and take things fairly seriously. So if you're the one who's doing the writing and that's you, bear that in mind and give yourself a little bit of buffer for when you inevitably spell or phrase something in a way wherein the jokes can latch onto it very easily. And just be okay with that happening, because it's going to happen. That's basically my take on it. <clears throat> so this is also, <clears throat> excuse me. This is also it's worth mentioning the point where the, where the anniversary is actually referenced, because when Matt says that the group is getting it's is asking for a TPK, Laura starts saying, "No, no, not on the anniversary." Yeah, so they take about ten minutes to come to grasp with the name Pervon. Yep. Um, at which point, as as they begin laughing and Travis starts suffocating, uh, Matt starts adding more hit points onto onto the various enemies he has in store. Um, and they 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 come to they come to terms with that information. They 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 finalize the fact that yes, Pervon is the 
current champion of the Raven Queen uh, is buried in a tomb that is now underneath the lock that they're going to, the lake that they're going to. So, Keyleth casts Windwalk correctly this time, as the entire cast is quick to point out. Uh, that's not that's not me editorializing. That's the players editorializing. Yep. Um. Uh, and they the group of them uh, travel as bits of gas, uh, farts as it were, um, to the lake that they are going to. Upon arriving and acquiring back their physical forms, they take a look around, trying to see if they if they can figure out a way to get down to where the temple is underneath the water. Grog attempts to stick his head into the lake before being reminded that the lake was frozen uh, and smashing himself face first into what turns out to be about an inch, inch and a half thick sheet of ice, which is pretty thick. Uh, for, yep. for uh, I'm trying to think of how, like, when lakes freeze over, what the common thickness is. And I feel like... It depends on how cold it is. Like Usually... Yeah. Yeah, like if you're talking Great Lakes dead of winter, you're talking a good 18 inches plus. Yeah. Yep. But uh, an inch and a half is more than enough to support your weight, isn't it? Mm, depends how close to the shore it is and that sort of thing. But, I mean, even for somebody of Grog's size, throwing yourself through an inch and a half of ice, even if there's nothing on the other side, is gonna hurt. Yeah, yeah it ain't gonna feel good. Uh, which it, it, Grog smashes his face, gets a little bit of blood. Uh, they do a few things to try to figure out, understand that they're going to be camping here on the on the site. They still do a little bit to try to recon the bottom of the lake. Grog, uh, having been given back in town... Sorry, I did skip over one thing. Back in town, Zara finally gave Grog the thing that she had told him about previously that she wanted to give him, which was a shiny new hammer. Which uh, the group then proceeded to convince Grog he had liquefied Vax with. Uh, as he attempted to test out the hammer by swinging it at Scanlan first, who dodged, told him to swing it at Vax, who was not visible at the moment. Uh, Scanlan created a, a, a shitty illusion of Vax, which Grog uh, mistook for the real thing, swung the hammer through the illusion, smashed it into the mud... Scanlan dropped the illusion and Grog was convinced he had liquefied Vax with one hit. Yep. Which Travis plays Travis plays that particular type of character very well. And it was hilarious and also mm. part of the reason why the first 30 minutes of this episode was them fucking around. <laughs> regarding that whole regarding that whole excitement over Grog potentially having a new weapon by the way folks, spoiler alert. Don't get too excited over it. Yeah, he immediately puts it in the bag. <laughs> and I'm going to ruin this one. It never fucking gets used. It, nope. No, it does get used again right now as Grog pulls that hammer out and uses it to break up the ice to let people scout underneath the lake. In combat as a weapon. <laughs> You're right. It never gets. And for those again. of you in, in, interested in adding to your real life nature and survival checks, according to the Minnesota DNR, anything under four inches is not really safe to walk on. Definitely don't try and drive on it unless it's at least eight to twelve inches, if not thicker. There we go. 
So this not safe to walk on sheet of a sheet of ice is broken apart by Grog using a warhammer, which makes it very much less safe to walk on. Uh, and the party uh, uh, Vex, Vax, and Zara attempt to go reconnaissance. Attempt to go do some recon. Zara turns into an alligator, which has no problems. Vex and Vax turn into uh, their gaseous forms, which has several problems, not least of which is they still need to be able to breathe in their gaseous form. Uh, so they emerge back, having unsuccessfully dove into freezing cold water. Uh, Zara, meanwhile, gets to the bottom of the lake and finds that the bottom of the lake is incredibly muddy and that there is not any plant growth down there. Uh, she, you know, sort of uh, messes around with her with her snout for a bit, realizes that there's a lot of mud on the ground, but that there might be something beneath the mud and beneath the dirt on the bottom of the lake. She comes back up, relays this information. Keyleth thinks about it for a minute and realizes that uh, some realizes something that I am now forgetting about the bottom of the lake as to why there are no plants. But I believe it comes to the effect of there is something underneath there. Alternatively, it might just be a standard oligotrophic lake, which doesn't have a lot of nutrients in it and therefore not much plant growth and therefore probably much safer to drink from. I know for a fact she doesn't know that she doesn't get that because Matt didn't say any of that. Okay. That's said. Yeah, that's not why. <laughs> <laughs> Fine, I'll take my geography major and I'll just go play somewhere. How often have you had to say that, Jack? Actually, surprisingly, a lot more than you'd think. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh... oh, anyways. Um... So they, 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 they rest by climbing themselves up into a tree, um, getting Trinket up there somehow. Uh, Vex has Trinket lay between Keyleth and Cash, uh, and Trinket growls at Cash repeatedly throughout the night. Uh, Keyleth, and Vac Keyleth and Vax, meanwhile, falling asleep on Trinket. Uh, and first watch goes to Vex and Zara, who see owlbear, who see a herd of owlbears in the distance. Um, the owlbears apparently come to the lake, have a drink, and then leave, leaving behind some owlbear feathers, which uh, Vex turns into a couple of arrows, or, or uses, uses to, uh, up to, what's the term? When you put feathers Fletch. in there. Thank you. To fletch a pair of... To some arrows. Uses them to fletch some arrows. Uh, I believe Vax and Zara have a bit of a conversation, but it's not much of one. It's just mostly just uh, casual conversation. Mm -hmm. Next watch is Vax and Percy, who have a fairly in-depth conversation with each other about sort of the nature of Percy's demons and how Percy is feeling now that uh, the demon that was sort of possessing him has been exercised. Uh, he indicates that he hasn't had uh, he, that he's pretty certain he's fine he hasn't had any of those feelings of anger and resentment that the demon whose name I can't think of at the moment um, Orthax. Orthax, thank you uh, is no longer possessing him they talk about the nature of family and how their found family is there. He, there is a family there for him if he wants it. 
um, Percy as, as saying that he admires how put together Vax is, which which brings some looks from Liam, which will be fun to get into later. Um, and as they finish their conversation, Kima notes that she had been awake the entire time and asks that they would please shut the fuck up. Uh, which, which is then interrupted by the sound of a large bird flying overhead. As the entire party wakes to see the rock from many episodes ago, back when they looked kind Work. of like cows. <laughs> by the way, I would actually agree with Percy that Vex is one of the better put together members of Vex. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that one. Yes, that one. Because they're all fucked up, but at least one of them is self-aware enough to know it. Which is basically the gist of their conversation, actually. We're a bunch of yep. fucked up people, except Pike. Except Pike. But no, no, no. I mean, Pike's dealing with some shit, too. And Pike Just is. not quite as obvious, because... Occasional occasional absences. Yeah. Uh, but that's 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 what the characters say, yeah. not necessarily what. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, everyone wakes up to see the rock, then goes back to sleep. Then next watch, Scanlan and uh, Kashaw have their watch, and Scanlan, very knowingly to Kashaw, informs him that Vax isn't really available for his affections. Uh, Scanlan has noticed that Kashaw has been looking at Vax uh, intently for the past little while and wanted to provide his worldly opinion on, on the status of that potential relationship. <laughs> uh, we have a bit of a bit of a funny conversation here as Kashaw and uh, as Scanlan, very un unaware, has this 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 conversation with Kashaw. We do seem to there does seem to be some indication of animosity from Kashaw to Vax. Um, in this conversation that Scanlan does not pick up on because Scanlan has a different idea in mind. Uh, which I'm not sure. Have, prior to this, have there has there been any indication of hostility between the two characters, or not really? No. So this not is, particularly. This, this is sort of the first impetus we got. We get that Kashaw seems to have some issue with Vax. Um, at least potentially, he may just be playing this up for laughs. But right. The, 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 you know, indications of, you know, something about Vax just makes him want to run out, run at, run to him, spear first, as it were. Um, some underlying indication of tension there that, that Scanlan. I mean, to be fair, while it might be stronger with Vax, that is, that, that is Kashaw's general standpoint towards humanity as all. It, that, that is fair. That is Kashaw's general standpoint towards people. Also, I want you to appreciate how uh, how hard I tried not to make a wrestling joke when you mentioned they watched The Rock go by. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just picturing Dwayne The Rock Johnson flying through the sky. <laughs> oh, look, The Rock's going by. 
just out dis- outtakes. I look like a cow. Outtakes from the Tooth Fairy. It's just I'm just thinking. There's just an echo of. Can you smell what the rock is cooking? Just in the distance. This is a stellar phenomenon that occurs regularly. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh. Ah, wrestling. Anyways, <clears throat> they, they, it, this is this is probably my favorite bit of the whole show. Uh, of this particular episode is this the exchange between Scanlan and 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 Kishaw mm-hmm. and the the intentional on the player's part, not necessarily on the character's part, misunderstanding of information um, is is particularly funny. Legit. Uh, there's a bit in there about Percy rhyming in his sleep and then immediately failing to rhyme in his sleep, uh, and then the party wakes up. And Grog goes to pee on the lake to make the hole that he, that had been freezing back over open up again. Kishal goes to join him and is immediately surprised, bemused, and uh, uh, one-upped by the size of Grog's dick, which is canon apparently now, to be massive. Yep, that happened. So, mm-hmm. moving on. <laughs> I'm just gonna let that sit for a minute. Anyways, <laughs> the 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 party uh, uh, Keyleth uses control water to basically cut the the water in half, opening up a path to the bottom for everyone else to go down and begin digging. Uh, Vex and Vax begin digging sort of in the muddy part, whereas everyone else begins digging in the rocky part. Vex and Vax very quickly find themselves stuck in a mud pit and unable to get out. Some shenanigans ensue before uh, Scanlan uses Bigby's hand to dig them out. Uh, And then he also uses Bigby's hand to uh, help Grog and Zara uh, unearth a stairwell that seems to have been collapsed at the bottom of the lake. They rush into the stairwell after, after some deliberation which costs precious time on Keyleth's control water, they rush into the stairwell, uh, Keyleth in tow, uh, pack it closed with the mud and rocks using Bigby's hand, and then use Bigby's hand to reinforce it as Keyleth lets go of the control water, burying them beneath the lake firmly, if precariously, in the hallway, which is where they then go to their break. Yep. Uh, so they come back and uh, uh, Vax moves ahead. Uh, he sees a couple individuals up ahead. Warns the group. The group tries to be really stealthy about it. Um, not everybody is. Uh, Keyleth rolls a natural one specifically. Um, <clears throat> Zara and Grog also see the creature, which are which are revealed to be uh, uh, Sahuagin, uh, on patrol. Uh, there's also a couple of tunnels. The group decides to that, that the group decides to check out, uh, splitting off into two. I say two, but I mean three separate ways because Keyleth and Percy stay behind. Uh, Zara, Scanlan, and and Kshaw go left, and Grog and Vax go. Uh, Grog finds uh, uh, Grog finds the the right ends in a chasm. Well, Zara finds a goo-covered tight spiral staircase. Uh, uh, after Grog pranks Va- Vax, 
and nearly gets him to fall down the chasm because this prank war is escalating to dangerous levels already. <laughs> ha ha! You fell hundreds of feet. Um, foreshadowing. <laughs> uh, the Very distant re- foreshadowing. <laughs> Unintentional I mean, foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the group reconverges and they head down the spiral staircase, finding some feathers along the way. And Vax nearly gets himself beheaded by a trap. Uh, uh, they disable the trap, specifically Scanlan does, uh, who gets talked into it by Kasha taunting him. And they go ahead and they, they go on and move ahead. There's a bit of, uh, of, of fun dialogue and jokes had over the, over the trap and trying to disable it by hand because it's a spring-loaded blade. And and Percy says something about, well, the good news is we get two tries each. Um, <laughs> they continue on at that point at a slightly upward angle for about 40 feet and find themselves at a T-intersection where the floor is falling out. Uh, Vax jumps the hole to the right, finds a wall with the Raven Queen symbol carved in, well, left is a set of double doors. Everybody eventually jumps to the door with ease, with the exception of Grog, who nearly falls in the hole, but gets saved by Trinket, Trinket and Keyleth. Um, heading further in through the doors, they come across a large room with four pillars inside and a couple of shapes moving along, speaking in undercommon, which Vex understands. Uh, the, the rest prepare to, as Vex says, play and 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 vex reels, reveals that the creatures know that a they're there b that this is the tomb and c that a fight is incoming uh zara goes ahead and casts light at that point because there are people in this party who don't have dark vision uh the creatures call to their master as a as everyone tries to be sneaky and a fight kicks off I had the exciting part of this episode. <laughs> um, I do want to point out, by the way. Yeah. Um, because I don't, I don't know if we've touched on it before. We may have, and I just may have forgotten, because as I said at the top of the episode, ADHD. Um, light. Oftentimes in D&D games, people will forget light. Both players and GMs. And I yeah. find that that's kind of like I, I I personally think that it's really interesting to take into account the amount of light that you have, and whether or not everyone can see because that 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 adds an extra level to a lot of different encounters that you might not be thinking of otherwise is what you know what the actual visibility is here. Say just as an example, as a couple of examples. If you're trying to sneak in on a camp of kobolds who are in a cave, they have dark vision and you have a human. The fact that you have a human who can't see in the dark means that you are going to require some level of light in order to, in order to move about and operate in the cave. But any level of light is going to make it diff- is going to make it very obvious where you are, especially to creatures who can see in the dark. Which is, of course, why you have the elf go in and not the human. Yeah, but it, that, that therefore, is then part of how you <laughs> right. approach that. 
taking into account how light affects your encounters is one of the more interesting to me aspects of building an encounter. And I think that it's something, I, and mostly I just bring it up because I think it's something that people should take into account more often. Oh, yeah. Especially when they're GMing, but also even when you're writing narrative fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, think about how many times you've written narrative fiction and the author has taken the time to point out what the light level is to you, the reader. And then think about how that might affect how you would read a scene. Does a stealth section of a, of a book get more tense if the main, if the protagonist can't see, therefore not being able to tell exactly how well hidden he or she is or they are, uh, as opposed to if if they did have light and thus could tell exactly how well they're hidden. Um, there is there is an understandable primal fear humans have of the dark. And you can make very excellent use of that in your writing just by controlling how much light there is. Absolutely. And, and it's something that, of course, you see a ton of in any sort of visual media yeah. because without without light, you don't have TV shows and movies and stuff like that, you know. Right. But yeah, when it's, when it's a non-visual media, it can be very easy to gloss that over or neglect it entirely but the the power of that scene element is still there and yeah it must good, be said, good writers will use that it must be said though also consider because yes it's good to make it to to indicate you know loss of light and that sort of thing is is very significant but also Make sure that you can implement that without losing your own sense of where the writing is. I cannot count the number of times, and I, I, I going back to where the the well we always go to, not Salvatore this time, but Forgotten Realms. <laughs> um, there are a couple of writers within the Forgotten Realms book. This is actually something I give Salvatore credit for. There's one thing that that guy knows how to do: it's right, it's right combat. Um, but there are a couple people who, uh, I think that Ed Greenwood has created a truly iconic world in Faerun and populated it with some of the most, there's a reason why Forgotten Realms characters are some of the most beloved in The man can't write combat geography to save his life. And... Uh, I've seen a couple of times that he's tried to do it where he's played with the light and it makes it 10 times worse. I know I, and I consider myself fairly good at being able to discern combat geography, even when it's not particularly well written, but there are sequences in a couple of his books. I want to say seven sisters was one of them where Mm -hmm. I, I I read through the same scene like twenty times, yeah. and I couldn't figure out what was going on. Yep. Yeah. Like it, you have to be able to 
it's not always as simple as just, you know, oh, it, it, it's super dark and, and the protagonist can't see things. Because if he can't see things, unless you're telling this from an omniscient point of view, which destroys the tension, well, it doesn't destroy it. Because there are there are definite ways you can use that omniscience to sort of build build uh, build suspense. It's the old story of, of Hitchcock that uh, uh, suspense is knowing that there's a man at a table with a bomb underneath his, his chair that could go off at any time, even if the guy doesn't know it. So the, the, there's definitely an ability to build suspense from that point of view, but generally if you're on mission you're sapping a lot of that putting yourself in that person's point of view out so you really have to find that balance so you have to be careful with lighting yeah yes it, mm-hmm. it is a tool to be used and if yes you, absolutely if you suck at writing combat in the first place it's not going to help you get better <laughs> no 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 do not <laughs> use it as substitute <laughs> but anyways Also, if you write something, if you write a combat scene in the darkness and you shit writing combat and your protagonists are literally the seven sisters who use spell fire on a regular basis, you can get around that, Greenwood. Sorry. (laughs) Is this the bit where I finish up the fight or? Uh, Oh, no, no, no. Sorry. Sorry. Um... More Jeremy talk. So the fu- yeah, the fight actually starts... So the fight starts off well for the group. Uh, Vax does a fair bit of damage uh, to, to the Sahuagin. Uh, Kishat incinerates most of them. That said, of course, this is when the Beholder emerges from the hole right behind the party that, um, that Grog nearly fell into. And the party because out. surprise beholder is the best type of beholder. Yep. Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I, you say surprise beholder is the best type of beholder. I say beholder grafted into an otherworldly monstrosity is the best kind of beholder. I thought we said that wasn't a beholder, that it was a different kind of eye. That's not what I'm talking about. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Void Lord or something. <laughs> And this is where the players absolutely lose their shit. And this is so. This is where I was talking. Why I mentioned the the anniversary episode because anniversary episodes is something I wanted to touch. Anniversary thing uh, stories are something I wanted to touch on a little bit. It is something that is common in television, but I don't think it's in, it, not at the level of frequency you see in other. Uh, serialized narrative storytelling. Things like comics. Mm -hmm. Comics will take any goddamn opportunity to to call something an anniversary because that's when they get to double-size it and charge it. And not even even just comics, like visual visual novels in general, whether it be comics or manga or any other uh, visual novel style uh, representation. Boy, howdy do they love their anniversary. Love anniversary editions. Yep. But they're so anniversaries. Also, video games. I really enjoy anniversary episodes as, uh, as a rule, and anniversary stories as a rule, because 
it allows you to do things that would seem cheap in other episodes or other stories. Doing callbacks. Hey, look, what was the first truly like high epic level fight that this party dealt with on stream? A beholder. A beholder. Hey, look, here's the beholder. Um, now, was this just a beholder, or was it a, or was it a undead beholder? It was technically undead. It was a homebrew one. I don't think like a full own death tyrant or anything like that right no it wasn't a death tyrant yeah it wasn't a full um, death tyrant. but it was yeah uh but it, it was, was definitely undead yeah it was themed to the whole temple of death of death magic basically um uh but anyway so the beholder immediately as beholders do unleash some beams uh, a frightening Kima. Uh, luckily, Grog resists the petrification ray, and even better, Percy ducks a disintegration beam. You know, I really, um, I really want to. I really want a beholder to come out, unleash all of their beams, and just yell, "Taste the rainbow!" <laughs> there is something wrong with you. Uh, um, have, have you never had the Xanathar in any of your... I know, campaigns? I've never had the Xanathar in any of my campaigns. Because that's exactly what he would do. <laughs> he, it's totally what he would do. Um, my god. That does it. We're doing a Waterdeep campaign. Yay! <laughs> We've done a Waterdeep one-shot before. But... Right. <laughs> yep. Sorry, we keep interrupting you, Jeremy. It's okay, it's okay. I mean, there is literally nothing thematic to talk about for the entire rest of my my, my run on here. So, the fight continues. The Sahuagin very enthusiastically join in. Kima gets telekinetically dropped into the hole. Whee! Uh, Keyleth blights the beholder. Uh, it then hits Scanlan with its death ray. Grog shakes off a paralysis ray. There's lots of rays going on. Uh, uh, Vax hits it with a couple of daggers. Kishaw hides and waits until it can't prevent his magic from taking effect because of the whole, anti-magic you know, anti-magic eye. Uh, it casts blindness, which doesn't work. Fires off a few more rays. Uh, seriously, the opening to this fight, is, it's a lot of fun to watch, but it's really dull to describe. Um, Zara shakes off a paralysis ducks a disintegration beam Kishaw manages to avoid being put to sleep Jack take it away Uh, more combat ensues and Scanlan like sticks a fireball on the ceiling so that it only hits the beholder and not anybody else yada 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 the beholder's dead like really, See, this time, I really just... wish I could have done that, but that was literally like half of my half of my section. I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, well, and like most of the beats, most of the narrative beats in this episode yep. happened before this and after, fight and after the fight. Yeah, no, because there's only like one or two that happen after the fight. They're in big ones, of, right? They're big ones, sure. There are also but... none that really happen in the fight. None. 
Yeah, not a this single is, one. This right. is one of the. This is one of the, and it gets more. It gets more like this as the player characters become more comfortable with who they are as adventurers. Yep. Uh, but more and more, the the combat tends to get more mechanical as they get higher in level, and part of that is because they've got a lot more mechanics to deal with. <laughs> right. They've got a lot more tools in their toolbox. But anyway, they do eventually defeat the beholder without anybody getting in too terrible amounts of peril. There's some nail biting moments a little bit like, you know, anytime your character's paralyzed. Yeah. That'll freak you out a little bit, you know, but that sort of thing. It's one of those um, interesting, one of those interesting things that carries over. I don't know if anybody, I don't know if either of you have ever had like uh, sleeping paralysis where you're awake, but you can't move. No, I know. I know this. I know the phenomenon. I have I had it once as a kid. Yeah, yeah. I, I have. And, it is terrifying. Oh yeah. <laughs> and and funnily enough, paralysis of your character does translate. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Not to the same that. extent, but Right. But after the beholder's dead, they haul Kima's ass up out of the pit where she is more or less fine. Um and commence to the general kind of looking around the area because they came to this temple with a very clearly stated objective. We need to find this vestige of divergence. Um, there's a sarcophagus to investigate. They start poking around there. Um, and then the incident happens. <laughs> the incident. Yeah. The yeah. good news is they found the, they found the vestige. The they found the vestige. They found the vestige. Right. So they haul the lid off the sarcophagus because all sarcophagi have lids. Um, and under laying inside it is the corpse of the former the 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 ranger formerly known as pervan sul they found where perv wearing the death walker's ward this you know highly powerful heavily enchanted armor devoted to the raven queen that they uh came here to look for and percy not really thinking before anybody can say, hey, let's be careful and anything, yada, 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 goes to pick it up, which is when the necrotic energy trap bursts out and hits, I think, him, Trinket, and Vex. Yep. <clears throat> now, Vex was the most heavily in. And this puts her straight dead. Yep. No fanfare. No ceremony, just Percy grabs something without really thinking of it. And one of the twins is a cold corpse on the floor. And the <clears throat> impact of an unexpected death is honestly what I wanted to bring up at this stage, because that's something that probably most of us have seen in some level of media. The death where you weren't expecting it, it wasn't foreshadowed that much, you know, it's just, it comes out of left field. Oh, yeah. No, and, and all of and, a sudden, you've got one less breathing body than you had. And I feel like we need to clarify ago. this because, as, as I recall, it was so unfort. Like, like, I think people were in the middle of talking when person, when, yeah. when, 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 like, Talison's like, oh, I grabbed the armor. Yeah. And, and, and so, like, it was, it was the most casual way to, uh, realize that Jim, he's dead. Um, right. Like, mm -hmm. uh, 
because it, it was absolutely unexpected for everyone, not right. not just not just us, the audience, but the players yeah. and the GM as well at that point. Right. And it's fair to tell us, and it was like eleven thirty or some yeah. shit. Into the, right. into yeah, the night, wasn't I'm something tired. he did being necessarily stupid or anything. Very, he was goddamn tired. Very right. much in character. I'm tired. We just killed a beholder. Let's grab the thing and go. Right. Yep. It, was, it was just a very perfunctory sort of statement, you know. And but and and those types of death, for me at least. Are some of the most memorable. I think of Terra in in Buffy. Um, I was going to say, I, I yes, of, we're familiar. We're familiar right. with with sudden deaths. We've watched Joss Whedon programs, right? Yeah, I'm uh, I'm thinking. Wash. I mean, honestly, wash one of the in... right. Wash a little less so though, because they were actively being pursued and were still in the process of leaving. That, but it was it did it was a surprise. Yeah. You know? Yep. Um, you know, Tara in Buffy is having a conversation with her girlfriend in a certain room in the house, somebody out in the yard in a conflict that is technically sort of happening, at least probably in the audience's mind, a full scene away, pulls a trigger and a stray bullet just goes through a window and right through her chest cavity and all over Willow and she's dead, you know. Um, I honestly, still for, quite forgiven Whedon for that. Oh, fuck no. That one, that one's going to go with me to my grave. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the other one that I always think of is, does anybody remember Deep Blue Sea? Of course. No. Yes, right. absolutely. Yes. yes. Right. What, here's what we're going to do. I, we're going to get those. Shag- I, have, I have never seen Deep Blue Sea, so please explain. All right. If, so Blue Sea is a shark movie. Um, it is an I awesome shark movie. that much. It, right. It is, it is a hilariously over-the-top awesome shark movie. Um, and it begins with, you know, basically we've got this sort of ocean base where scientists are studying sharks <laughs> and doing some experiments on sharks and that sort of thing. Um, and basically they've either made the sharks slightly more intelligent than they should have been or whatever. Anyway. Um, it, it's it's the era of films where every 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 potentially dangerous animal got a movie where they were genetically enhanced. You think? Right. Just out of out, do you think that genre of movie is the reason why certain stretches of the U.S. political landscape don't trust science? I really fucking hope not. Because that that suddenly makes a lot of sense to me. If if there is a certain section of the U.S. political sphere that looks at movies like that and goes, see, this is why we can't trust scientists. And that is why they don't trust science. I right. really fucking hope not. No, that's why we don't trust movie scientists. Right, exactly. I mean, yes, right. but, but anyway, the so they've got these genetically enhanced <laughs> sharks. There's this ocean base with, like, wet exits and things like that. Basically, everybody, the, the sharks get loose. It comes out that we enhanced their brain size so we could do flebdiv, whatever. Um, and Cure Alzheimer's. Right, yeah, cure Alzheimer's. Right, yeah, that's what it was. Um, and... This makes the sharks smarter, more dangerous, and now they've turned on the people who were experimenting on them. Um, 
and of course there's all the the there's all the character interparty conflict also, and finally it gets to the point where samuel L. jackson has got them into what feels like a fairly safe place and he's delivering this monologue about how they need to pull their heads out of their asses get together work as a group so that we can do xyz get the fuck out of here because we're scientists we're people who know what we're doing we're smarter than these sharks Q shark leaping out of the wet exit behind him, grabbing him around the torso and just yanking him back. Down. No, like warning whatsoever. Yep. It, it, right. It was the jump moment of a movie full of jump moments. Also, I want to point out that human beings are the only animal on the planet that don't get exponentially more deadly when they get slightly more smart. <laughs> well, that's because we're not natural predators. We do it all with tools and you know technology. And I know, but just, anyway, it's one of those funny things. Right, like yeah, yeah. we've we've increased its intelligence by five percent. It will kill us all now. Right? Basically, yep. No, that's, that's just every animal. What it is. Every right, animal yeah. except humans. Right, but yeah, if you want to see a really well executed, unsignaled character death. You know, especially, and it's it's Samuel L. Jackson. You assume his character is going to have some level of plot armor. Not a chance. You know, um, and that sort of death is really sticks with you. Yeah. And there's lots of themes that you can explore with that. You know, because I mean, like honestly, when people think about themes of death, there's all the there's there's a whole spectrum of things that you can explore. But one of the ones that I like to to highlight in things that I create and write is it it's going to happen you can't see it coming all the time you know sometimes shit just goes sideways and bad shit happen yep you know and that those and that might be why these types of deaths stick with me more than you know ones that are a little more nuanced and cultivated and set up you know and because because we've seen those types of deaths too the ones that you see coming you know the the sacrifice play the time right. when you know there's there's the slow-mo shot as the guy throws himself onto the grenade you know or whatever my, um, my favorite are the ones that you can see coming long enough ahead that you think you can stop it but you can't, yeah. Which may mm -hmm. explain why Grand Terra, uh, why Grand Terra Rebirth <laughs> ended the way it did. <laughs> See, for me, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna reference a couple, uh, the ones that were big for me, and then one was the Buffy one, <clears throat> but it's not the same. Like I said, I still have not forgiven Joss Whedon for that one because I mean, fucking Terra and Willow, Buffy deaths, Buffy deaths that I that I'm still crazy. Yeah. About. Buffa death. Tara and yeah. Willow. For Let me hear yours. Buffa death sounds okay, like a Borderlands Buffy, thing. The Buffy death is, and a lot of people, uh, I, I've argued this one with a lot of people. A lot of people don't think that it was a sudden out of nowhere death, and I strongly disagree. And it's Joy Summers. Oh, God. Joy yeah. Summers, the reason that they disagree is because she was sick. And well, yeah, but lots and, of people are sick. But lots of people, and it looks like she it looked like she had gone into remission, and she had. <clears throat> yeah. And then it wasn't it wasn't the, the disease that she had that killed her, it was an aneurysm. Right. Just and it comes out of nowhere. And mm -hmm. the episode, the end of that episode is the most traumatized a TV show has ever made. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I then the episode well. that aired <laughs> afterward. Oh was, god fucking gorgeous one of the single best episodes of television i've ever seen in my mm -hmm. life yeah 
Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. So that's a big one. And before I say this one, because this is a somewhat new film that came out last year, do I do? John hasn't seen this, and I know he won't because it's a horror. <laughs> um, Jack, have you seen Hereditary? No, not yet. My girlfriend has, and I keep hearing about it. Okay. There is a death that happens. To to keep it fairly spoiler-free, there is a death that happens in Hereditary that is, similarly, it is one of the single most horrifying moments I have ever seen in a movie. Like, it comes, it's so out of nowhere. And is it the one where they're driving the car? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Okay, you're familiar with it. Oh, I'm familiar. Mm. So there is a scene in Hereditary. I have warned the listeners enough. They know that it's Hereditary at this point. Spoilers, listeners, in Spoiler alert. There is a scene in Hereditary where hereditary is based around the, this 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 somewhat suburban family who live sort of out in the out and a little bit in the uh, the boonies a little bit but it's Utah. Um, what are you gonna do the 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 teenage son takes his his 13 year old sister to a high school party um <laughs> because he's supposed to be watching and he wants to go to this party so they had back or, or while they're there she sort he sort of leaves her to fend for really, herself really quickly how yep. old is the kid 13 does she die yes this will upset me i'm just letting you know that now i am a father of fair two enough. and one of them is a girl <laughs> fair enough yeah mm-hmm. uh, i'm i'm yeah i'm not gonna be explicit about it. but essentially a, th- a trigger uh, a sequence of events happens um uh charlie the 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 sister uh triggers a severe nut allergy allergy he takes her back to the car drives along and in the process of that sequence of driving along she dies not from the nut allergy that's as far as i will leave it mm-hmm. my son has a nut that... allergy too by the way <laughs> sorry <laughs> That said, that moment and the few moments that you see after that relate specifically to that are some of the most mind-fucky scenes I've ever seen in a film. Like any film. I've watched fucking Audition and uh, the the frickin' Human Centipede movies. And... Uh, I spit on your grave and like my level of films that I am that that have fucked up shit in that I will watch goes all the way to but stops before a Serbian film. Yeah, my which if you're familiar with it, you're familiar with it. If not, I'm not going to explain it. It's not worth don't (laughs) don't Google a Serbian film. No, don't. Um, but yeah. like that, that is about where my limit lies. Like I won't go that far, but, and this movie fucked me up hard. And that's the point of that sequence. Mm-hmm. And it is a moment that stay hereditary was my favorite film of last year. Or rather I should say 
it's a movie that I have not been able to get myself to watch again, but it is, it is in my opinion, the best made movie. Since becoming a father, I, my, my tolerance for my already very low tolerance for horror movies dropped even further because I get it. So many horror movies rely on endangering children, and I just can't yep. handle that at this point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, yeah, no, I get it. I, I have. Um, I freak out when kids get endangered in video games now. <laughs> one of my one of my good friends when when she had her daughter, she can't watch like Game of Thrones anymore. She can't watch anything. There was a long period. She still there. She, I feel like. The, CW level style shows and 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 the violence and the things in there is about her limit at this point. I, yeah, like I can watch I can watch things like Supernatural and right. uh, which I've started watching. But uh, um and like it's I can, and for I can five seasons. I can handle like <laughs> fantasy. I can handle like fantasy endangerment for the most part because I can mm-hmm. I can di- I can separate myself away from that. But if it's a fairly modern esque looking child, I if you endanger that child, I will kill you. Yeah, no, for <laughs> legit. And it is like I, I don't have any of that. I'm not a parent. I don't just don't have any of that kind of sense. Of all the horror movies, John, do not watch this. Uh, definitely. I wasn't of going to all the horror movies. In I wasn't going to watch it. Now. I wasn't going to watch it in the first place. I didn't think so, but should you ever think, you know, people <laughs> told me this movie was really good. What the hell? Tony give it a Collette's shot? a good actress. I might be able to give... No. Yeah, no, Jack. Don't. If you want to make Heaton go dead serious, endanger a child. Do it. Okay. <laughs> Um, but the whole point of uh, of us talking about these things is these these deaths are memorable because of the amount of impact they are they have. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, just the coming out of fucking nowhere. Uh, but but it's also not just the shock value. It's the it's the meaning behind that because all of these things are just you know Joyce dies from something that Buffy can't stop and protect. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tara dies from something nobody could first see coming. Uh, other than the fucking idiot pulling the trigger. God damn it. Um, right? Fuck Warren. Um, Hereditary, uh, that scene couldn't have possibly been foreseen by, by, by Peter, by the son, no matter how much stupid shit he did that brought them to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these, these scenes are significant because they come out of nowhere, but they, they have an effect because these are scenes about how fucking random and how cruel life can be, you know, in, 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 in critical role. It's because of one simple mistake that nobody could have, that every, every player character ever has made. Yeah, not thinking to check for traps one time. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't usually kill a core member of the party. Yeah. So Vex um, is dead on the floor, and then the next dramatic beats start. Yeah. Because they have a cleric presence. Kashaw has 
the spell prepared that is needed. But the the GM very deliberately begins to speak about what casting that spell might cost. And of course, there's, you know, those familiar with critical will know that the resurrection rules there. It's not just, I cast the spell, she's back, everything's fine, la di da di da You know, it's, it's a process. It's not always reliable. Resurrection, you know, the, the attempt to revivify a, a deceased individual is never certain. Um, you know, so the outcome is in question, even if the attempt is made and that sort of thing. So there's a lot of tension there. But for Cash specifically, his patron, the deity from which he draws his power, is not a nice person. We don't know that much about her, except that according to Cash, she's the worst. Um, and so... Will Friedle has to make the choice for his character. Is this something that he is willing to risk? And there's a great amount of just tension and waiting as these very important seconds are ticking by because there is a clock on this, according to the the rules of the sp how the spells work. And. Kashaw eventually comes to the conclusion that yes, this is a this is a worthwhile risk and sacrifice to make. The the process of attempting to reconnect Vex's body with her soul is undertaken, and this is happening in a ruin that at one point at least, was fairly closely tied to the Raven Queen. You know, the goddess of all things dead, more or less. And she actually shows up. Which is a little surprising, I would say, for most of the players. Um, and Vax, who is understandably completely at the end of his rope with his sister being, you know, dead on the ground in front of him, addresses her directly, um, you know, basically giving an open-ended invitation of bring my sister back and I'll do whatever you need, um, which, uh, as, as most of us with a level of genre savvy know is never going to come back and bite you in the ass. Um, <laughs> and the, uh, the, there, there's just the amount of desperation that enters the room is palpable and ridiculously poignant um, as they go through everything they possibly can and the spell is concluded and she starts to breathe again. And then, of course, there's the 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 outlet of the tension the catharsis and it's it's a really well conducted scene um and correct me if i'm wrong but this is the first since they started streaming at least first player death yep on on stream oh is it the first player death i feel like there was one other nope this is the first i'm almost certain of it yeah they have this is the first time we actually saw a Pretty sure we saw a revivify on a player character. 
I, 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 I could be wrong. I can't, I can't currently confirm or deny it. Okay. But they get what they need. Vex and the rest of them exit the tomb. They transport via plants, because apparently at this point it's like, nah, fuck the fire, Ashari. We'll, we'll deal with that uh, later. No, Grog died to Kavarn. Prior. All right, then. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is the this is the second on screen player death. Okay. <laughs> I just looked but it up. Was that, okay. I just looked it up well, on Kerbal Stats. Was that a revivify death or a. Because those are two very different kinds of deaths in that. Game. It does say deaths. Uh, death is also included in knockouts. So it does. So it might yeah, be a knockout, right. not a death. I was going to say, I know he went unconscious during the Kamarian fight, but I don't think he died, died, died. Yeah, this is this is on Curl Stats. For those that are curious, curlstats.com slash VM dash KOs. Uh, they have the, all, the list of all the Vox Machina deaths and knockouts throughout the series. Um, mm -hmm. It just says death. No, no, it says deaths and then times knocked unconscious are separate. Uh, deaths, Grog, episode 11, to Kavarn the Mad. Yeah, okay. Uh, he was also knocked... Yeah, no, it says... Because uh, uh, he's also included in the times knocked unconscious. Uh, he was knocked unconscious by Kavarn and then died. So yes, we have had... Grog is the only other death on stream. Right, prior. but... The question still pegs, was it a revivify situation or was it a raised dead situation? Because yeah. those are two was very different They revivified him. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. They did not have to use raised dead. It was a revivify. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was something that Pike probably did. Yes. Specifically mm -hmm. Pike did. Right. Um, But I think when Pike did it there, it wasn't the full process the way Matt y prefers yeah. to run I, the I, revivify. No, I believe, they, I believe they did because I remember... Uh, Vax helped out with it. Oh, okay. Vax, yeah, Vax and Pike both helped out with it, as I recall. We actually talked about it, I think. <laughs> gotcha. No, I'm sure we, we did. Probably we've we've did, done that episode. Like, that was like a year ago. We are but. almost halfway through. We are almost halfway through uh, the Vox Machina storyline, by the way. Oh, shit. I better start getting caught up on Critical Role season. Uh, <laughs> uh, campaign, uh, two. campaign 2. We are, we are, I'm we like are, 15 episodes behind on that. We are two episodes, just, just as a note, considering it's the anniversary episode of, of Critical Role, uh, we are two episodes away from the actual halfway point in the Vox Machina story. Cool. Ah, I got time then. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, but they they travel back to Whitestone, um, taking uh, Kashaw and Zara with them, um, yep. and Kima as well, and basically sort of beginning the first steps of setting up Whitestone as you know the stronghold of the resistance against the Chroma Conclave. Um, you know, as they're starting to continue to draw their allies there, give a foothold back in Taldore um, for the people that are going to be standing against this organization of dragons. And with their first vestige now in hand, they end the episode with starting to try and look forward to where they're going to go and what they're going to do next. 
So yeah, killing people. Yep. Good shit. The thing that happened. It is. For sure. For anybody curious, because it does never again get brought up, uh, the Moonhammer is a moon-themed two-handed warhammer crafted by Zark. It's a just grog. Um, it, it is a plus one warhammer that, if wielded in moonlight, give, get, gains a charge of greater in, invisibility. Which is cool. Because greater <laughs> invisibility, you can stay invisible while you beat people to shit with a hammer. Yeah. Yeah. Never gets used. <laughs> Never gets used. <laughs> uh, but yeah. Any 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 last closing thoughts on this episode? Check for traps, man. Check for traps Legit. is always a good piece of advice. <laughs> always in life, check for traps. And don't experiment on sharks. No. Don't experiment on sharks ever. Don't 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 do any experiment that gives a non-human animal greater intelligence because it will kill you. I mean, it doesn't always kill you, depending on the depending on the on on. It might enslave you and blow up the Statue of Liberty. Or if it's small and fluffy and f- and, and cute enough, it might become your friend. And then eat your corpse later. I mean, I mean that's, that's what cats do. Cats get a cat. Right. <laughs> Anyways. Genetically what? enhanced or not, they're still cats. <laughs> that cat didn't go cannibal. That cat went cat. <laughs> tiger went tiger. Anyways. Yep. Uh so yeah, we'll be back next time with those who walk away. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>